You're listening to the DCAU Review, hosted by Cal and Liam. Streaming on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at DCAUReview.com. Now, here's today's episode. Welcome, everybody, to episode 130 of the DCAU Review. I am one of your hosts, Cal, and with me, my good brother, good friend, and the gentleman that runs our Twitter page. That's right. It's Liam. Liam, welcome to episode 130 of the DCAU Review. That's right. We're back for the final week of October. Happy Halloween, everybody. And we are, of course, reviewing the spookiest thing we could think of this week, the first two episodes of Young Justice. It's almost like we didn't think this out that much. But now, uh, yes, I'm very excited to be here. As we mentioned last week, a lot of people have requested that we review uh, this show going back to some of the early days. It was one of the first Elseworlds things that uh, we saw get requested. So very excited to uh, finally get to talk about these two episodes, Independence Day and Fireworks. That's right. And uh, as you said, Liam, Young Justice, it has quite the cult following. And as we do with uh, every one of our Elseworlds episodes, we'll talk a little bit about the series itself and some of the history of it, since we are introducing a a, a new version of the DC universe here uh, and talking about it. So excited to do that today. And uh, I know that we'll have the official IMDB synopsis to sort of introduce us to these two episodes. Episodes, which uh, originally aired actually as a single pilot named Young Justice Independence Day, uh, all the way back on November the 26th, 2010. So actually, Liam, if we had planned it right, we kind of did plan it. We're coming up here on the 10-year anniversary of this Young Justice debut. Uh, of course, uh, that was a, a standalone sort of movie pilot that they released, and then the series itself kicked off later in January of 2011 on the Cartoon Network. But uh, do you have any memories about uh, Young Justice? Anything that uh, we usually like to share personal thoughts and and feelings about this? This was a little bit uh, beyond the scope of uh, my time. Maybe I had kind of gotten out of uh, superhero cartoons for a little bit. Uh, I was definitely more into what was happening live action around this time. And Mm -hmm. uh, I I think I've expressed before, I've never actually had cable before. So again, this being on Cartoon Network, uh, my only exposure to this, I think, was when it was streaming on Netflix. Uh, I watched uh, maybe these first two episodes and maybe maybe one additional episode after this, but I never really got into it. Do you have any uh, personal anecdotes about uh, Young Justice? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember watching, I think I did watch this premiere uh, in November of 2010 when they aired it as a movie. Um, I Yeah, I had kind of a, I was such a huge fan of the Teen Titans cartoon, which of course had finished up in, well, I think the final episode aired in 2006, but it aired in reruns for years after that. And between that and of course, you know, the main DCAU shows, which you and I talk about every week. Um, I think this just being its own thing, like, I respect that, and we'll certainly get into it, but for whatever reason, at the time, uh, my being whatever I was, 17 at the time, this one, just for whatever reason, didn't grab me much at the time. I think also because when it aired, uh, I just, uh, you know, I was working a retail job at the time, I wasn't home a lot, it aired, I think the new episodes were airing on traditional Saturday morning time slots, and... 
there weren't a lot of repeats of it, and uh, so I didn't get to catch a lot of the new episodes as they aired. So it was just kind of one of those shows I, I saw on occasion and kind of caught up with when I could. But yeah, it's uh, and in some ways I think that's fun because for for both of us we kind of got to go into it with a little bit more fresh eyes because it wasn't we're not we don't necessarily have that nostalgia blindness on us with this one. With that said, yeah, that's that's uh, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, with that said, like like I mentioned before, this has developed quite the cult following. I would oh, say a yeah. uh, lot of lot of rabid fans of Young Justice. Um, I think it has run. Tech, it, its original run was what two seasons or three seasons? Mm-hmm. Two, two, yeah. and then since then there there was an additional season that came out uh, at some point. Right, we're up to four seasons now. So the fourth season's currently in development and will be coming out, I I would assume, on HBO Max. We know it won't be coming to the DC Universe app, so... R.I.P. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, so I, I believe it will be... It definitely is coming. It's currently in production. Um, but yes, yeah, so three seasons have currently aired. The first two aired on Cartoon Network. Um, and then the, the third season did air as uh, one of sort of the tentpole shows of the first year of the DC Universe uh, app's launch. So yeah, like you said, it has a, a huge following. It was uh, it was developed by Brandon Vietti and Greg Wiseman, who have both done a lot of work in uh, in animation, and they're uh, they're they both had a hand in the Under the Red Hood animated film, which is very beloved. Of course, we reviewed that. You can hear our review of that back in the archives at dcaureview.com. And of course, the the name Young Justice itself is is based on the name of a comic book from the '90s that focused on. Uh, it was for every reason they wanted to get away from the Teen Titans branding. They kind of let the Titans all grow up and be adults at the time, but they still wanted to have sort of a young teen hero group, so they called it Young Justice with the idea that this one was sort of more in direct supervision of the Justice League. Yeah, yeah, I remember that too. If I recall, that was Robin, Superboy, and Impulse, I think, mm-hmm. in the comics. So uh, this iteration and this version of it, also, by the way, I did not mention, but uh, this episode specifically is actually an Emmy award-winning episode. Uh, the Ooh. the uh, lead character designer, Phil uh, Burasa, and I apologize if I'm in any way butchering that, but he was the a- actual uh, character designer for this. He won an Emmy for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Animation for this episode. And as I mentioned, he was in charge of sort of the character design and uh, doing a little bit of research. It's interesting. He, he had done some early work with DC and actually uh, took part in some of the development for Batman mystery of the Batwoman, which of course takes place in the DCAU. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, uh, so he then went and did some work for some other companies and then he ended up coming back. Bruce, Tim had him come back and do some work on one of the wonder woman, films uh direct to video wonder woman films and uh after that he uh he stayed on and and did the uh, actual character designs for this episode so you know when we get into talking about some of the visuals and animation uh we'll have some more to talk about there but let's go ahead and jump right into our uh to our imdb official synopsis to get an idea of just what this episode is about that's right, and as mentioned, this is a two-parter, which means I have two synopses to read. Oh, yeah. And these are for the episodes Independence Day and Fireworks. Both were written by Greg Wiseman. Uh, part one was directed by Jay Olivia. Part two directed by the great Sam Liu. 
uh, with music by Dynamic Music Partners and both parts animated by MOI Animation Inc. And those synopses read as such. Three teenage sidekicks decide to investigate a fire at a genetics laboratory. There, they discover a plot to create a clone of Superman. And for part two... Robin, Kid Flash, and Aqualad are captured, and only Superboy, the telepathically controlled clone of Superman, can free them. As they struggle to reach the surface, they must do battle with the transformed scientist known as Blockbuster. Well, there you have it. Uh, those are pretty good, actually, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It, this, the, the way part one opens, we get these like four little vignettes of... Batman and Robin, Green Arrow and Speedy, Kid Flash and the Flash, and Aquaman and Aqualad, all uh, handling different ice-related villains, and then and they're all sort of having dialogue with each other about how all the sidekicks are really excited. That keeps you keep hearing this phrase: "Today is the day." And uh, as they all arrive at the Hall of Justice, uh, they they're told that they're going to be inducted as as full-fledged members of the justice league but they uh the sidekicks sort of quickly find out that that's not really what's happening and that in fact speedy who is sort of he's sort of i guess drawn and and acted to be a bit older than the rest of the sidekicks and he's really he's he feels very slighted by it and he's telling him by the way this isn't even the justice league's real headquarters they have a floating satellite in space where they actually (laughs) go to meet and discuss all this stuff That's it? You promised us a real look inside, not a glorified backstage pass. It's a first step. You've been granted access few others get. Oh, really? Who cares which side of the glass we're on? Roy, you just need to be patient. What I need is respect. They're treating us like kids. Worse, like sidekicks. We deserve better than this. You're kidding, right? You're playing their game? Why? Today was supposed to be the day. Step one in becoming full-fledged members of the League. Well, sure. But I thought step one was a tour of the HQ. Except the Hall isn't the League's real HQ. I bet they never told you it's just a false front for tourists and a pit stop for catching Zeta Beam teleporter tubes to the real thing. An orbiting satellite called the Watchtower. I know, I know, but I thought maybe we could make an exception. Or not. You are not helping your cause here, son. Stand down, or... Or what? You'll send me to my room, and I'm not your son! I'm not even his! I thought I was his partner. But... Not anymore. And so, Speedy storms out, and the the rest of the heroes are kind of... The young heroes are left on their own devices as the Justice League go to deal with these, uh... With some sort of big, uh world-ending type threat, uh, but meanwhile there is also mention that there's a fire at a local laboratory called Cadmus Labs. And, Say what? And there we have our call to action, Cal. Well, actually, you know what? It, it's funny. There, you know, if you think about it, cloning is a little spooky. Like, there's a little, <laughs> there's a little spookiness to it, you know? I say that some of the uh, character designs, which we'll get to in visuals, there's some, there's, there's some spooky nature. I'm really, I'm really turning around on this. This was the perfect <laughs> episode for Halloween. Well, it also ties into the fact, you know, we re- reviewed uh, a few episodes of Justice League Unlimited this month, obviously. We talked a lot about Cadmus and mm-hmm. Cadmus's play in there. So, yeah, the fact that this uh, clearly features Cadmus, I think that played in very well to it. But, yeah, so we 
we learned that the, uh, of course, at knowing that name alone, we knew that there was going to be something uh, uh, not not above board happening at this Cadmus facility. And as you mentioned, we learned that uh, well, the young the young members of the Young Justice that are left there, which end up being Robin and Kid Flash, who I found it hilarious that one of the one of the running jokes in the episode was that nobody understood or remembered what his name was. <laughs> uh, in fact, at one point, somebody calls him Speedy and says, well, no, that's Green Arrow's sidekick's name. And somebody says, well, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that was good. Which I thought was really, really good. But uh, So they find their way uh, after, after talking amongst themselves and sort of bending the rules and saying, well, the Justice League said to stay here but, and not help them with this other thing that they were called off to but we'll uh we'll go investigate this and figure out what's going on and upon the investigation they begin begin and Ro- this is actually a bit of a showcase for robin and uh this is dick grayson we get confirmed later on in the series i mm-hmm. believe that this is dick grayson uh so dick is uh sort of modernized a little bit he seems to be very technologically advanced seems to be uh, quite obviously a bit of a hacker. Uh, so we, we find out that he's able to kind of hack into these systems and figure out what's going on. And he finds a, an elevator that leads down uh, 52 flights, Liam. And we, yes. we, get, we get the uh, DC's favorite number there of 52. So 52 flights and on their way down uh, to this level, they begin to run into these strange creatures uh, who we soon soon learn through some exposition and dialogue uh, from a few characters that these these creatures are well they're a little bit unique. Yes, so yeah, they really they kind of combine a couple different things here. Um, so in the in the comics of the '90s, when this version, the Connor Kent version of Superboy, was originally created. He came from this Cadmus Labs where they had all these strange genetic creatures. Uh, his sort of mentor and friend and sort of part of his supporting cast was this, was some of this Cadmus crew we see. We see the superhero Guardian, who's also like, I mean, I guess superheroing doesn't pay the bills. So he also is the chief of security at Cadmus. <laughs> um, and then he has this sort of strange devil horned uh, telepath called Double X. That uh, in the books was sort of Superboy, one of Superboy's mentors and friends, and we see some of those characters used a little bit differently here. They're all sort of working at the behest of the leader of this facility, a guy named Mark Desmond, who, of course, uh, in the comics would become, and in fact, in this show, becomes the blockbuster. Um, and sort of, they went with the very classic origins of him being sort of this mad scientist and. Uh, but in here, they're also using these these creatures called genomorphs, which themselves seem to be clones or, or made up of some of Double uh, X's powers that they say they're for like instant telepathy. It's like a communication system. But in reality, these little small genomorphs are also controlling the minds of Guardian and anyone else, Superboy, the other scientists working there, anyone that Mark Desmond needs to do something. And once you know it later on, though we don't find their identities out yet, we find out that Mark Desmond himself is a small player here as he is answering to this mysterious group, which we will come to find out is called The Light. Three sidekicks, Robin, Aqualad, and Kid Flash, breached security. They found and released the weapon, the Superboy. Of course, the clone is under our telepathic control and, as ordered, turned against his would-be liberators. 
The three are contained, and we don't believe the League knows they're here. Uh, what should I do with them? Clone them. The substitutes will serve the light, and only the light. And the originals? Dispose of them. Leave no trace. Yeah, so they're the ones, obviously, that are kind of in charge of everything that's going on here. They seem to be the one pulling the strings. They keep talking about um, what I forget what the nickname that they gave Superboy was the the not the experiment, but something like that. He has the a very weapon, sp- I believe the weapon. Called? Yeah, yeah. So uh, they keep alluding to him, and through various hacking means, um, the mem- the members of I guess the preliminary members of Young Justice here, who we have are you know Robin. Aqualad and Kid Flash discover there's this super secret project all the way down on level 52 called KR. So they need to figure out what it is. So they work their way down there and, and upon entering, they find out that KR is actually a capital K small R, which of course is the periodic table uh, denotation for Krypton. So we suddenly they put two and two together. That and if we, you didn't get that right off the bat, the, there's a giant Superman logo emblazoned on this guy's <laughs> white jumpsuit. So they kind of figure out pretty quickly that there must be something going on here with Superman. And we again more exposition is given, and we find out that it, in fact there is a cloning process happening of Superman. Depending on who you ask. Uh, Superboy himself says it is uh, for the purpose of if case something ever happens to Superman or in case something needs to be done to Superman uh, and he stops quote quote unquote following the light uh, so we learn very quickly here that uh, unfortunately there's something devious happening here and Superboy uh, does his best to sort of dismantle them uh, as they come in despite the fact that they're trying to liberate him he sort of does his best to to dismantle them and the young justice members become captured as we as we kind of round up with episode 1 here yeah that's that's kind of your your cliffhanger for the first part and again of course this aired as a a 44 minute tv movie the first time so there wouldn't really be a cliffhanger so much as a commercial break here but yeah, I I think that's that's interesting there. That's when we jump into part two, Superboy. They have Robin, Aqualad, and Kid Flash all locked up, and Superboy's just kind of staring at them. And you kind of they start to talk to him and start to figure out that like he clearly wants to go out and explore the world, but isn't being allowed to. And you know they ask him, "Have you ever actually like seen?" the outside world and he said like i've had images of them downloaded into my brain or something like that but you can tell that this isn't he isn't a drone he isn't a robot uh compared to some of the other genomorphs and things that we see in these episodes which seem pretty much to just be mindless drones that uh that live to serve uh either double x or or mark desmond and superboy clearly is kind of wrestling that with himself and uh and finally, towards uh, Aqualad is able to kind of get through to him and just say, "Hey, like, just give us a chance to help you, and we'll we'll figure everything out together." And he ends up kind of t- breaking free of that influence and is is able to free them, and, and that leads to right as as it seems like everything is going well, and and Guardian is is telling them, you know, you guys can go. I'll I'll wrap things up here. Um, we hear Mark. Desmond make a mention of going to collect something called Project Blockbuster, 
which in fact turns him into the blockbuster. And they we do in fact get a big knockdown drag out super villain fight to end our first episode uh, before the before the Justice League arrives. Too late to really help at all, but uh, they arrive and we get to see uh, probably the most, maybe the most interesting part of the end here is seeing Superman's reaction to learning that there's like an autonomous clone of him walking around and and sort of his general like un unsureness and sort of wanting nothing to do with it. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if you mentioned it too. There was a there was a slight plot twist in that we found out that Double X was in fact trying to help Superboy escape. Essentially, that's right. Yes, and we uh, we find out he actually set the fire at Cadmus originally to draw them here. And actually, in part one, you see he is like standing in an elevator long enough for Aqualad to see him, which gets them to chase down the elevator shaft. So yeah, that's a good point to mention. Yeah, he he says that Superboy is going to to do what the other genomes couldn't do or the genomorphs couldn't do and he's going to be their, you know, he's going to be their leader. He calls him brother. So he he really looks at him as as if so yes, these are creatures that are clearly created in a lab, but it is an army full of these creatures that he at double X himself may or may not be a descendant of and were or the father of basically so he's he he, and he does call superboy brother so he's in somewhat related to all of these creatures so he Mm. wants him to have the freedom and the autonomy to do to make a choice so the moment where he asks him to make the choice and he selects freedom i thought that was really really great perhaps for the sake of all genomorphs our brother superboy should make up his own mind it was you Yes, brother. I set the fire and lured your new friends down into Cadmus. Woke them when they were in danger. And guided me. Why? Because you are our hope. The Genomorph Hero. You will blaze a trail for all our brothers, showing us the way to freedom. Uh, but you're right. Then the the I think rivaling that as far as interesting as Superman's reaction once he he arrives on the scene and he sees Superboy with the S emblazoned on his chest and clearly there's a uh, a genetic uh, similarity in an appearance. Uh, so he clearly recognizes a younger version of himself and this being a clone. So. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting to see them interact, and Superman is maybe a little less than warm towards him, (laughs) I would say, maybe putting it nicely. Is that what I think it is? He doesn't like being called an it. I'm Superman's clone. Start talking. Yes, for sure. Um, and you could tell, like, certainly that the Superboy, certainly to this point in the series, is still very new and sort of has this aggressive tendencies to him anyway, and he's, he's sort of very combative when the League first shows up anyway. But then, yeah, on top of it, they do have this moment, as you mentioned, where he kind of shows off the S symbol and kind of smiles at Superman, and Superman looks back at him almost like a little bit disgusted by it all mm-hmm. and like really concerned and not sh- not exactly sure what to make of it all so that is uh that is kind of an interesting wrinkle that obviously plays out over the rest of this first season but uh yeah th- that's that is an interesting way to kind of I think to give us this jumping off point for what will be the rest of the series we 
we get the the core members of the team. Of course, at the very end of the episode, we're also introduced to the fifth member, that being uh, Martian Manhunter's niece, Megan, uh, Miss Martian, who certainly is one of the breakout characters of this series uh, later on. Um, so, yeah, you start, you kind of get the basics of the team, the building blocks of the team put out here, and then you have a little bit of a call to action. You you understand by the end of the show what this is going to be, basically. They are going to be sanctioned to go on missions by the Justice League, but it's going to be more stuff like what they did with Cadmus, and that's going to be a more, like, covert team where they can kind of send a smaller group of these heroes uh, into places that maybe the, the big, giant group of Justice Leaguers that we see arrive... Uh, wouldn't be allowed to go or wouldn't be able to go in without being noticed. And we get a sort of cliffhanger and sort of the, you know, the ominous foreshadowing of what the main baddie is going to be, or this sort of, ironically, the sort of shadow work behind the scenes and the puppet masters. And that being this mysterious group called the light that uh, have taken notice that these small heroes are now being sort of officially deputized by the justice league and are going to be doing their work. And that the justice league isn't afraid to kind of put these young heroes in harm's way. And, uh, the light says that they're going to continue to use that to their advantage. So we kind of are off to the races after this, I assume. So, uh, yeah, so I, I guess we can talk about our scores here. I think overall, we always talk about it when we do pilots, Liam, that it's very, very hard uh, for an epi- uh, a show to jam pack everything into your opening opening video uh, opening episode here you have mm-hmm. to introduce characters you have to introduce plots you have to introduce subplots you're you're telling people who everyone is and revealing their skills and wh- you know which versions of these characters you're about to watch and why you should care about them so it's always a, a heavy load to bear here when it comes to you know introducing characters in a, in a pilot sense uh, i think they do a pretty good job and i think they definitely benefited from having an hour to do so i cannot imagine what would it have had to have been done to try and jam this into a single 22 minute episode mm-hmm. so this is a case where we've talked before in the past about you know wanting an episode to be a little bit longer so it didn't feel as rushed i still feel like there's a lot in this episode yes it's very very busy it's very very jam-packed and i appreciate that they didn't bog you down necessarily with like introducing who aqualad is since he's maybe not as well known or you know which kid flash this is we sort of i think the opening scene did a great job of sort of setting up these preliminary players and who they are with that said there's still a lot in this i felt like you know the addition of blockbuster at the end sort of felt like a tack on that was like I don't know. I, I we need somebody to punch. <laughs> right, exactly. Which I appreciate because it was a little light on light on action. And there's a lot of tension in the episode, but the light on action at times. But for all those reasons, uh, I gave it a strong but not perfect 7 out of 10. What about you? <laughs> and I gave it the exact same score, a 7 out of 10. Uh, yeah, like... I think the we get a little bit of who each character is, more so Robin and Aqualad, I think, in this episode. Kid Flash is kind of more there for a little bit of comedic relief, and as you mentioned, there's some jokes about his name, and then him sort of... And, and for a lot of the episode, they even kind of mention it near the end, that he they've been in such like confined, close corridors that he hasn't really been able to be that much help right. in the episode, which I appreciate, because they at least justify... It's always tough in these team shows. We talk about this a lot with Justice League or JLU. 
to come up with a reason why Superman or the Flash or Wonder Woman can't just solve everything for you. Right. Why you need an entire team of people. So uh, uh, I think they do a pretty good job with that. But yeah, I think from a story for story perspective, we get we know that Robin's very impulsive and he's very good with computers and he's kind of just this weird he's kind of a little he's just a little weird he's a little off this version of robin like we're introduced to him by him he's like cackling off screen before he appears and then he repeats that a couple more times in the episode and we'll certainly get into that in voice acting but yeah he's he's a he's a weird amalgamation it seems almost of the two Robins that we are kind of familiar with that being, he seems, I mean, he's younger. He's not, mm-hmm. the, he's not the Dick Grayson that we're used to because we, we've obviously had the older versions of Dick Grayson. Even if you go back to super friends, that Dick Grayson was an older Dick Grayson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're maybe not familiar with that Dick Grayson character as the younger Robin, which may be why it seems off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, He's also definitely different than the portrayal that we get of Tim Drake in in the DCAU. So it's not that or that not that character either, and it's definitely very different from the Teen Titans uh, version of Robin. So it's very unique, and I, I totally get what you're saying. It's it's a little bit off. I totally get that. Yeah, and I, I think they do do a good job though of showing Aqualad as sort of this born leader. Um, for sure because there's multiple times where he's sort of being the one being like hey we, you left those guys on the roof i had to rescue them and robin being like oh yeah i knew you got it and then there's a couple other times where aqualad is kind of the one that steps up and and comes up with plans and everything to uh and the way they all kind of work together in the end to uh to take down blockbuster is really cool so yeah i think they it's a good job. Again, you're juggling a lot. I think it's good that they didn't also try to shove in uh, Miss Martian and Artemis, who of course become part of the team later on, um, or more stuff with Speedy. Um, like I think this was this was pretty jam packed as it was, even with the two episodes, as you mentioned. I agree. Yeah, and Miss Martian. I mean, I will say that Miss Martian did feel like that could have been saved for another episode. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a weird way to end end this and you know maybe just introduce her at the beginning of the next episode instead of tacking it on at the end of this episode that that was an odd choice i thought but yeah overall it's it's it was enjoyable and uh you know seven out of ten from both of us is certainly a respectable score all right Liam, let's move on to visual and animation Uh, i've got a lot to talk about here as we already mentioned uh this is certainly uh, worthy of some praise, especially and deservedly so. Obviously, if it, if it won an Emmy, we weren't mm-hmm. the only ones to notice that. Uh, obviously, this is a very different animation style, certainly more akin to that of the direct-to-video DC films. Mm-hmm. Uh, more of a traditionally, it's not anime, but more there's more of an anime influence, I would say, in this than a sure. than the traditional, uh, you know, DCAU or what, maybe what we've been used to in the past. Uh, what are your thoughts on animation visuals? Yeah, I think they're they're very well done. Um, I think again the way we're introduced to all of the uh, what appear to be our four main characters before Speedy uh, quits in those four little sort of vignettes to start the episode, I think are really cool. You get just like a really brief overview of what they can do, what their skills are, and who who they are. Like you said, they don't, there's not a lot of hold hand holding of trying to explain like the origins of Atlantis and the hierarchy and Aqualad and or you know where Kid Flash got his powers or we don't go over Robin's you know Robin's origins or anything like that. It's pretty much just. This is who they are. You know who Batman and and Green Arrow and Aquaman and the Flash are. These are their sidekicks. Even if you don't know know them that well, that's kind of your brief introduction. And those sort of quick action beats are 
I think are a good way to do that. Um, and then, yeah, I think the standout pieces for me, I really like the way Aqualad's powers are visualized. Uh, when he uses these, I guess he can control water, which I guess is that hydromancy, I think that's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also has, he can also put some kind of electrical charge into it, but he has these tattoos up and down his arms and back. And when he's using his powers, they glow, they're black, but then they start to glow blue and it looks like it sort of comes from within and then sort of shoots out of him. They do Yeah, some... He has sort of Eskrima sticks too, doesn't he? Like mm-hmm. he has electrically yeah. charged... Yeah, he has, like, these two handles, and depending on what he wants to form the water into, he makes them into maces, he makes them into swords at one point. There's an electricity element to them as well. Yes, because... he, has, he can do some sort of electrical charge as well, because twice in the episode, once when he's fighting the genomes, he just electrifies some of them, and then later on he gets he gets the blockbuster to basically stand in a large trail of water, and he pu- just touches it. And it begins to electrify and electrify. He tries to use it against Superboy as well, to right, little yeah. little or no avail. That I don't think we mentioned that in plot, but the the part where as as the Young Justice break S- Superboy out of his pod, and then he sort of battles them. That fight is actually a pretty interesting visual in and of itself. Yeah, I think because yeah, he kind of comes out uh, arms swinging, guns blazing there, and goes right after Aqualad and. We see Robin and, and Kid Flash first try to kind of muscle him off. Of course, that doesn't work. And then it's sort of a divide and conquer thing where he keeps knocking one of them back. And then Robin like throws gas in his face to try to throw him off. And then Aqualad seems to be really the only one who can actually hurt him or kind of go toe-to-toe with him from a strength standpoint. But yeah, the way that that, uh, that sequence is put together with him just sort of being this out-of-control uh you know, super strong kid and, and the, them still trying to learn how to work together to take him down is, is really well done. Yeah, I agree. Um, I also had noted the, the entrances, you know, of, of course this is a show that's going to be focused on the side, quote unquote, the sidekicks. And it's funny because that's used as sort of a, uh, an insult throughout the episode that they mm-hmm. don't want to be known as sidekicks. And uh, the introduction of these sidekicks, each with their own, you know, with their, their uh, hero, uh, Batman's entrance, of course, extremely cool. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the cape flailing out as they battle Mr. Freeze. And, uh, I, I thought that that was, that was a visual that's, that stuck out. Uh, I'd also mentioned Aqualad's water manipulation. That's certainly visualized a few different ways, uh, throughout the episode. Um, as far as the, as far as the character designs themselves though, since that, that's the Emmy, that's the Emmy award winning, uh, thing here. I thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, doing research on this episode, the, the character designers, uh, d- were determined to kind of do a little bit more realistic functionality to everything. And that comes out a little bit, I would say in Robin, especially, um, as we mentioned, he's the hacker, like he's very mm-hmm. electronically advanced when it comes to things here. And that comes out, he has the, he has the, those traditional Robin sort of, I don't know, are they pouches or those little mm-hmm. square things on his gloves and, and yes. shoulders that that's, I think first were introduced in the new Tim Drake costume, but there's some actual functionality in there is there's actually wires that come out that he plugs into the computer and there's mm-hmm. uh there's sort of a holographic images that pop up over his glove that he's able to sort of manipulate as he's hacking. Uh, but I thought that some of that, including some of that quote unquote realism in with and functionality in with the character designs was something that stuck out for this episode too. Yeah. I think there's still very much the classic versions. Like you can tell that's Robin, you can tell that's kid flash, but yeah, there's a little functionality kid flash when he's running, he has goggles that he pulls down red goggles that go over his eyes. Very impulse uh, by the way. Yes. 
Yes, uh, very very cool idea, and it, like the again, just it's it's cool little sim- little sequences like that that just give you something for your characters, a little extra animation for your characters to do. You didn't have to put that in, but to have that when it's when it's time to go down and Kid Flash is finally free in that part too, and he gets to pull the glasses down and starts running up the stairwell to go uh, meet all of these these genomorphs that are waiting to fight them. Like it's it's a cool moment, and yeah, you see they're a little they look a little bit more armored up. Uh, mm-hmm. Aqualad not as much, but you you figure him coming from the ocean, he would have a different type of armor or for sure or gear anyway. Uh, and we've already talked about his sort of sword weapon things that he has. What about okay? I think the the most interesting visual maybe throughout the entire episodes are these genomorphs mm-hmm. and certainly their designs. And there's a little bit. I felt like a little bit of Mir- Glenn Mirakami influence mm-hmm. in some of these designs. Um, some some of their the way that their eyes are shaped reminded me of some Glenn Mirakami, Mirakami designs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that they're really interesting. There's three or four different models that they use here. There are these giant like troll like ones, uh, something that you might see out of Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. or something like that. G- these giant creatures. And then there's the sort of the early on, early stage advanced that are like baby, childlike. You know, the ones that sit on the Guardian's shoulder and mm-hmm. is, is sort of responsible for for uh, his, the mind control over him. And then you have this sort of two two of them that are sort of middle staged advanced creatures, ones that, uh, you know, have these razor sharp claws and the ones that are a little bit bigger than them. Uh, and then, of course, Double X himself. And one of the things that sort of seems to go throughout and the way that they communicate visually that these creatures are communicating is that they have these horns on their head that sort of glow when they're either manipulating or they're they're communicating to each other mm-hmm. telepathically. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think, again, you, you give a quick verbal explanation of it, but then you just, from there, everything is very much a visual cue. And in that case of... Every time when when Desmond says something that he wants, when he gives Guardian an order and Guardian starts to talk back to him, you'll see the horns on the one on Desmond's shoulder glow, and then the horns on the of the Genomorph on Guardian's shoulder glow, and then uh, you know the Guardian's eyes will get real wide, and then he'll sort of repeat very uh, you know, whatever whatever Desmond wants him to do. Um, yeah, so they they came up with some some very uh, creative ways to uh, get that the sequence where they're in the ventilation shaft and. Uh, Robin pulls up the camera system and you go back and you see all of the Genomorphs crawling very quickly. It felt very horror movie-ish. Like... When, yeah, when Desmond decides to activate all of the Genomorphs in the Cadmus facility, which I yes. thought was a little bit over the top, but <laughs> he's like, all of you now! Three children. <laughs> and all of, these, all of these eggs start hatching. That felt like a very like alien-esque or mm. you know, a horror movie alien invasion where these creatures are hatching as they're coming after yeah, them. Yeah, they had like, these like biological electric insects that are powering the whole facility because that's another little piece of throwaway dialogue is like how could a lab this big be operating without anyone knowing about it Mm -hmm. and it's because they have this like weird alternative energy source where they're basically breeding these weird electrical insects to power their whole facility that they're we see them locked into these tubes as well so yeah all of the creature designs in this episode, uh, including sort of the main event here, when we get uh, Desmond's transformation into Blockbuster, I think are really well done. And it's great. I, I love the transformation, especially because uh, we actually just talked about the Blockbuster recently because he popped up for a second in an episode of JLU. But we uh, he's he was kind of just Caucasian Hulk, I guess, in the... <laughs> 
in the 60s look like he's just a big jacked up guy and his to- clothes are kind of torn and we kind of see him turn into that version when he you know he drinks the vial of the serum he goes down he we see him grow massive and his sh- shirt kind of tears and you're like okay so he's going to look like the blockbuster but then he keeps growing and his flesh begins to tear off and we see this weird gray and red monstrosity actually much more like a traditional uh, hulk type creature i guess or monster type creature um, comes out underneath and sort of as the battle goes on more and more of his flesh is torn from his face at one point the kid flash punches him and then like has his has a bunch of skin on his hand afterwards <laughs> Um, so yeah, they, they, I thought that that final transformation of Blockbuster and into that design is, that's really creative and really, again, very, very body horror there when you start to see this, the flesh rip and reveal sort of the monster underneath. Yeah, I agree. It was definitely, it, it went from that standard boring sort of weird, odd sixties and seventies design to a, to a, yeah, certainly a, a doomsday ask or a mm-hmm. more monster, a villainous monster that seems a little bit more formidable. And when you sort of put up, you know, compare it to the other genomorph, cause it, you assume that it's genomorph DNA that's being used to almost like spliced into his own DNA. So it would make more sense that he would look like some of these creatures that are, running around in the Cadmus, uh, Cadmus facility. So yeah, I think they did a great job with that as well. Um, I, I thought visuals, uh, ended up being certainly the strongest thing that we have here to talk about. And, uh, there's a lot, it's, it's funny. Kid flash also at, at one point calls him the incredible bulk. <laughs> uh, so obviously we get some nods, nods there to the idea of, of, uh, you know, his model who is maybe modeled after. So yeah, I thought, I thought the visuals were definitely the strongest strongest tier it's i mean it won a freaking emmy uh for this so i i I don't know how i couldn't give it anything but a perfect 10 out of 10 yep and i'm uh, right there with you with my own uh 10 out of 10 for all the reasons we've already talked about it it's so it's really well done you're introducing all these new characters and then on top of it you get all these really creative monster designs and and all that, and and introducing all of these classic characters into your style. You know, at the end, when the the entire Justice League arrives, we see multiple Green Lanterns, we see Hawkman and Hawkgirl, and Aquaman and Green Arrow, yeah. and all these all these different characters. Captain uh, Marvel, yeah, Zatara, Shazam, Zatara, uh, yeah, yeah, the Red Tornado, Black Canary, we see at the very end of the episode. Um, yeah, so they getting to getting to play with it and not having to abide by any uh, embargoes like we, like we've <laughs> talked about recently that uh, that JLU sometimes ran into with certain characters basically getting to use whoever they wanted and I think that that so yeah there's so many great uh, so many great moments and yeah definitely right to uh, focus on the character designs above all else I agree absolutely all right, Liam, let's move on to our next category here, which is going to be music. And as you mentioned at the at the start of the episode, this is the Dynamic Music Partners who are responsible for this soundtrack, which actually has been released. So we were able to listen to some of this music in isolation. And I would say that that was very much a benefit to, uh, <laughs> to, to us this week because... Uh, for better or for worse, I think the music sort of takes the back seat to this week's episode. For sure. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a building atmosphere. We were talking before we went on uh, went on the air here. You met, you kind of likened it to 
uh, Batman Beyond. Not so much electric guitar in that sense, but a lot of this sort of atmospheric movement uh, music. It's very uh, drum machine and synthesizer focused. For sure. And a lot of, especially in the first part, it's a lot of them sort of sneaking around this facility in the dark. So it's a lot of like light touches, kind of building that general sense of of dread. And are they going to get caught? And like when they start running into the creatures and things like that. And, and so yeah, a lot of it's in the background. But we do get a couple of cool moments where the where the score really gets to swell. Certainly at the end there, when the Justice League arrives, was probably the standout for me. Yeah, I would agree, and, and it's funny when I was listening to it, Superman. When Superman first arrives, uh, it's in the shadows, and it, as he comes out of the shadows, the music sort of swells. And I think we both remarked as we were listening to it that there's a hint, a hint, of the Christopher Reeve Superman uh, uh, theme song there, the John Williams Christopher Reeves Superman song uh that plays as he sort of visually comes out of the out of the darkness and into the light there and right as uh, into superboy's visuals uh to me that was that was the most interesting and that seemed to be where the music seemed to play up a little bit there's also maybe a hint very small hint allusion uh to to the batman theme the danny elfman batman theme there's a little bit of dark quote-unquote darkness that comes in um, so yeah, I think that those were the highlights. I would say, as as far as the music is concerned, uh, but I, I I think because it was so visually interesting and so visually uh, engaging, that the music really didn't need to to be very much uh, as far as this episode is concerned. I guess we can talk about the theme song also, mm-hmm. uh, since uh, since this is the first episode we've covered of that. Uh, thoughts on the theme song? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's all right. Uh, it's it's short and sweet. Uh, it, this one does have a little bit of guitar to it, and uh, again, it's very drum focused, very uh, upbeat. I thought you had a pretty funny uh, line about it, which I'll let you get to in a second here. But uh, yeah, I, I I think it's good. It's just it's 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 maybe like fifteen or twenty seconds long. We see a couple clips of original animation mixed with some. Uh, actual clips from upcoming episodes so yeah i think they it's fine but i I want you to give the analogy you gave to me it's very it sounds very much like a news the introduction to us like six o'clock news program or something (laughs) like that um yeah it's uh it's it's okay and i i just wish it had been a little longer because i think it when it kicks in it sounds really interesting and certainly the like the the beginning of it is very interesting as well but it just sort of peters out. And if you listen to it in isolation, like if I just played it for you, which let me play it right now. Just playing it, it doesn't necessarily sound like a superhero theme song. Like, right. imagine like somebody turning towards you with their arms folded, with their name superimposed next to it, like <laughs> six o'clock news with right. you know whoever. It's like, uh, yeah, okay, that that makes sense. Like, it sounds more like that. So that that was my <laughs> thoughts on it. Um, obviously, I I I don't know this being sort of um, this my introduction or reintroduction to the series. I don't know how much music plays into this. And we, we've talked about sometimes in the differences of the things when we do some of these Elseworlds tales where music doesn't 
isn't as much of an emphasis as it was. And even the DCAU, we know that it was a huge emphasis in Batman the Animated Series, and then the further along we got, even though we have some great musical pieces that are done, it's probably not as much of a focus as it was in that original Batman the Animated Series. For sure, yeah. It's it's not quite as much of a character as I think the music often could be. Uh, it's less of a driving force. It's more to just add... And again, that's not good or bad. It's just a different storytelling technique. Correct. Um, but yeah, it's definitely more more focused on just, like we said, adding to whatever the people are talking about or whatever they're experiencing visually. That's just kind of an extra little bit there to... Uh... Wow. That's just... It, yeah, it's, it's it's more there just to add to whatever else is, is going on in the episode and what the, the characters are experiencing rather than kind of being meant to sort of pull focus in, in the way that sometimes the music and the other shows could. I agree. Totally agree with you. For all those reasons, uh, Liam, I would say I'm going to give my score for music, uh, which is going to be a, a respectable 6 out of 10. What about you? Yeah, I'm just a tick higher. I went 7 out of 10. Definitely think it would have been lower if I wasn't able to listen to the score in isolation. Um, so yeah, definitely uh, would love to be able to do that with all of these various cartoons uh, that we look at. So, But yeah, I think there's there's some good stuff and it, and it, it all works in service of what the story they're trying to tell is. So uh, job well done. Yeah, the music is available as of right now on YouTube. You can go find it. Couldn't find it on Spotify, uh, so you can at least check it out on YouTube. I'm sure you might be able to buy it on uh, through Apple Music also. All right, Liam, let's move on to our final category of the day, which is going to be voice acting. Uh, very excited to talk about this. Of course, we have a huge cast. Uh, some notable names also here amongst our voice actors here. Certainly some familiar ones where if you weren't able to immediately identify them right off the bat, you may be surprised to learn, oh, yes, that's who that is. Or, <laughs> ah, yes, I knew I recognized that voice. So who's in our voice cast this week? Absolutely. It's a big one. We'll start with some of the supporting players and then go to our main cast. We have, uh, briefly, we have Crispin Freeman as Speedy, uh, very over-the-top and angsty, this Speedy, um, and that sort of comes into play later on in the series. We have, uh, playing his mentor, we have the great Alan Tudyk as Green Arrow. There you go. Um, of course, now, among his many other roles, voices the Joker and Clayface on the Harley Quinn animated series. Yep. Um, we have Bruce Greenwood as Batman, who, of course, folks would know from the Batman Under the Red Hood movie, as well as the uh, just-released very recently uh, Batman Death in the Family interactive movie short thing, uh, whatever you call that. Uh, yep. But he is uh, the voice of Batman in that. He's a, he's a pretty solid Batman. He doesn't get a lot to do here, but I think, we, we again, you can hear us talk more about him if you uh, go back and listen to uh, episode 50, I believe, where we reviewed Under the Red Hood. We have, uh, speaking of some familiar faces, we have Phil Lamar uh, pulling double duty. <laughs> yes, uh, you may have heard his name once or twice on this show. Uh, but Phil Lamar voicing both Aquaman and Double uh, X. He's great. Yeah. I'm just gonna say it right now. <laughs> it's a little bit. It's a little bit like striking uh, when you hear him as Aquaman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it. it but Double X, I think, is is great because it's it's a unique it's a unique voice. Yes, his uh, his Aquaman is more just sort of his his regular voice with a little bit of like regalness put to it. Whereas, yeah, Double X is more of a a traditional character. He gets to sort of flex flex his acting muscles a little bit more there. 
We have uh, George Eads as The Flash. Again, not much for him to do in this episode, as well as another familiar face, that being Kevin Michael Richardson, who we see briefly as the Martian Manhunter, who gets to introduce his niece, Miss Martian, uh, played briefly by Danica McKellar. Of course, she will come back much later er, later on in the series and be kind of one of the breakout stars of it. And, uh, yeah, then we have our main players for this week. We have Jason Spizak as Kid Flash. Uh, I think he's pretty good. Like we said, he probably has the least to do in this episode of anybody. But you kind of get that sense of a, you know, he's a very, he's a fine uh, Wally West, you know, cracks some jokes. Uh, Ironically, as we said, uh, the Robin character is more impulsive than he is. Correct. So that's, that's kind of funny, but we do see him kind of, Kind of, again, he plays more of a comedic foil in, in this series, but uh, uh, yeah, I think he does a solid job. We have uh, former child pop star Jesse McCartney playing Robin. Heck yeah. Which is just wild. To me. <laughs> not, not, not because he doesn't do a good job. I think he does a fine job. Like we said, this is a very unique take on the on uh, at least certainly an animation uh, of this version of Dick Grayson. I think he does a fine job with it. He's He's very like He's just kind of a weirdo, but I think he does a good job with it. Yeah, I think he's fine. And when you told me that, I was like, what? Are you <laughs> kidding me? That's that's an interesting casting. Good for his agent to go yes. out there and outside the box when he's probably out there looking to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> but Disney Channel checks stop coming in. You get... Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, good good for him, though, you know? Yes. He, I, I don't think... I'd be interested to see how, how the how it evolves as the series goes on because i believe that the series ends up taking some dark twists and turns in various areas so certainly interested in hearing how that that vocal performance uh, evolves for sure and then our, our other two young justice members we have carrie payton playing aqualad who of course voices cyborg on teen titans and teen titans go uh sort of the definitive voice of that character uh, as well as, of course, he's uh, now live action. He's on The Walking Dead and uh, several other things. He, it's interesting because, again, he has a very recognizable voice, even though this Aqualad voice doesn't sound anything like his cyborg. But you can still kind of tell it's him. For sure. And he's sort of playing this character who's a lot more reserved and less... He's not quippy. Right. He's not goofy. He's, he's the eyes on the prize guy. And, and sort of later on in the series, that's kind of, I think, why they push Aqualad into becoming sort of the team leader rather than Robin. And you kind of see that that's on display here. It's not, yeah, it's not that he doesn't do a good job, but I think this is one where I just so strongly identify him as the voice of Cyborg that it's kind of weird whenever he's playing anybody else, but especially I think another teenage superhero. Especially one that's so, again, that you mentioned that's so straight laced because you're used to the wisecracks and the, you know, if you've watched, if you've watched any of Teen Titans Go or even, I mean, Teen Titans Go turns it up to 11, but even right. in the the actual Teen Titans show, he was still the quippy sort of right. goofball. Wild, gung-ho, you know, you know, fists flying, right. one-liner guy. Exactly. Yeah. So for, like, when I first heard this performance, I, I was like, man, I know that voice. Who is that? And I knew it wasn't Phil Lamar because Phil Lamar was the other voice. And then I was like, oh, that's Cyborg's voice. And once you hear it, it's like, ah. Uh, yeah, right. I can't unhear it anymore. Right, so right, right. it's not bad. It's just we've talked about it before in, in the past when you you can't unhear things sometimes. <laughs> um, it's just, yeah, it's like I, you so readily identify him as that other character that when he does 
do another character, even if it's a certainly a very different character, it's it's hard to it's hard to unmarry that voice if you know what I mean. For sure. And then uh, wrapping up our cast here, we have speaking of distracting voices, we have <laughs> Nolan North uh, voicing both Superboy and Superman. Um, and I just want to get this out of the way. He is a fantastic voice actor. He's done, if you have played a video game in the last 25 years, you have heard Nolan North's voice almost definitely. <laughs> um, most famously, he is the voice of Nathan Drake in the Uncharted series. Yeah, also has great range. He plays the Penguin in the Batman Arkham games. Like, he has a lo- quite a bit of range. But he basically just, for this role as Superboy, does his regular Nolan North voice. Mm-hmm. Basically his Nathan Drake voice. Yep. A little, you know, a little pitched up because he's playing a younger character. But it's very distracting to me that it's Nolan North. Because I've played so many video games where Nolan North is is the main voice or one of the main voices. So, it, again, not at all saying he doesn't do a good job, but it is very distracting to me <laughs> yeah it was funny because I, i'm not as much of a like i i play video games but i'm not as much of a video game guy as you mm-hmm. but i knew i recognized the voice from somewhere and it was distract it was another one of those where it, even me not being a huge video game guy it was still distracting because i'm like where am i where have i heard that voice before it's <laughs> so distinct and so unique um, and then when you mentioned that it was, that it was, you know, Drake from Uncharted, I was like, oh, <laughs> yes, I absolutely recognize that now. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree with you. He's obviously a fantastically talented voice actor with the ability to do great performances, but it, yeah, it's a little bit, he's a little bit over the top, I think, I think it's fair to say. Um, so very, very, very distracting <laughs> for sure yeah again not not that it's a bad job but yeah especially i think in that when it when he's sort of doing the thing where he's struggling to sort of uh, reprogram himself and he has aqualad talking to him and he has double x in his head and all that stuff like it's he's yeah he's a little bit over the top with it and obviously again we've got an entire series worth of time for him to sort of uh, figure out that role and and perfect it and everything. But like I said, just on this on this occasion, listening to it for the for after not really thinking about it for a long time, and as soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, that's Nolan North. That's going to be distracting. <laughs> um, and again, not not his fault that he has such a recognizable voice or that I've played so many video games. But uh, yeah, overall, like I said, I still think it's a very solid, strong uh, voice cast, and I, I actually gave voice acting an 8 out of 10. Nice. Uh, I went just a tick lower than you, and I actually gave it a 7 out of 10. Um, I think it's... I think. I think with so much that's done in this episode, again, we talked about it being the pilot, so there's a lot happening here. There's a lot of voices, and we're still kind of getting getting to learn these characters. It'll be interesting to see going forward, you know, if we cover more episodes in the future, which I imagine that we may, um, that, uh, you know, how these characters develop and how, the, you know, how their voice acting skills are kind of able to, to shine in different ways, um, especially with some of these other characters that end up getting introduced, so... Absolutely, and I uh, nearly neglected to mention him, but we of course have the great Rene uh, Aubergenois as Mark Desmond slash the Blockbuster, who of course, as we mentioned, has done quite a few voices over the years on various DC animation, and of course was on Boston Legal and a hundred other television shows. So uh, I think he does a good job. Again, very a very over the top villain, but 
for such a kind of outlandish story, I think it was fine to have him be sort of the over-the-top mad scientist uh, dealing with everything. So, yeah, I, I think uh, everyone, like I said, everyone does a good job, even the ones that I found distracting for, you know, different personal reasons. Perfect. All right, Liam, let's tally up our scores here at the end. And uh, tallying everything up here, I end up with a 30 out of 40. What about you? And my final score is just a little bit higher there, Cal. I have a 32 out of 40. All right, Liam. So I guess we talk about rewatchability, and it's interesting because you know we always struggle with that when it comes to the Elseworlds tales here. I think sometimes we should consider maybe even when it comes to an Elseworlds just giving a straight-up recommendation. Do you recommend checking this out? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, with a cult following that this has certainly garnered and just uh, the... Certainly, I, I would say the lack of current DC animation projects other than the direct-to-video, mm-hmm. um, which those are kind of a watch it once or twice, and it's there's not really... You don't have the binge option like you would with a, with a Netflix show with something like that. Right. So with that being the case with, with Young Justice, and especially I think this us, us overall enjoying this episode, I would give this a, yeah, give it a check it out. I don't know that I'm going to watch this... 10 more times or something like that. Like I would, uh, you know, one of our standard DCAU show episodes. Um, but I would recommend people check it out. If you haven't seen it yet, give it a shot. If you've been on the fence, check it out. Uh, give it a try. What about you? Yeah, I would say so. I think you, you give it, you give it a chance. You see if it grabs you, if it doesn't grab you, then you can always move on. But yeah, I think this, like I said, this first two parts has a, a lot of moving parts to it. It's very action packed. It's not boring. Um, and it kind of gives you the lay, lay down of what kind of the whole show is going to be about and and sort of where the jumping off point for the rest of the series will be. So, yeah, I think it's it's worth at least watching these first two episodes and and, uh, and giving it a shot. Agreed. All right, Liam. Well, that will wrap us up for this week's episode. Thank you, everybody, for checking us out. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Or if you want to, you can always check out episodes every week at dcaureview.com, where you can also check out the archives. You can also check out our shop, which is on dcaureview.com. If you want to support the podcast, get yourself a shirt, a hat, a hoodie, do something to support the podcast since we don't sell ads here. Don't forget, you can also leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't mind, let the good people at home know what you like about the program. Liam, we like to do things big here. And we haven't uh, – I'll start this off by saying we haven't had a lot of guests on this program. Going back 130 episodes plus our 13 or so bonus episodes, we've had one guest – that's right. In those 143 episodes. Uh, but I, I dare say that coming up next week, uh, this is the biggest guest we may ever have on this program. <laughs> uh, very likely, yes. Um, we will be returning to the world of Batman the Animated Series and the DCAU proper. Of course, we review those episodes in order, so we'll be picking up where we left off with a huge episode, one of the tent poles of the entire series. Almost got him, and reviewing it with us will be the colorist uh, for the Batman The Adventures Continue series, as well as plenty of other DC comics work and comic book work in general. Uh, Monica Kubina will be joining us, best friend of the show, 
Uh, she will be joining us next week to review the episode with us, and we can't wait. Our special correspondent, That's only right. the second one we've ever had. Uh, we're super excited and super uh, fortunate to be able to have her on. And we're not just going to do a standard interview because that's not really our style here. But she's been gracious enough to agree to watch Almost Got Him. And then she's going to review the episode along with us as a special guest correspondent. I cannot wait. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. So uh, you will not want to miss that. Make sure you subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. But until next week, I'm Cal. And I'm Liam. And we'll talk to you on the next episode of the DCAU Review. Bye-bye.